0: Welcome to episode 20 of the Lady Science podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science magazine.
1: I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian, a writer, and an editor, and I study 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s.
2: I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science.
0: I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. (laughs) Um, When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So before we get started, um, we really want to say a
2: huge thank you to everybody who donated during our pledge drive last month and to everyone who helped. Share it and spread the word um, we were able to reach our goal of a thousand dollars in monthly patreon pledges yeah and so because of that, we can now double our rates for writers um, and we couldn't be more thrilled about being able to do that so thank you thank you thank you thank you so much yes thank you thank you thank you thank you for giving us your money <laughs> thank you for giving us money. <laughs> um so it's june and that means that it is pride month and so like we did last year we wanted to take an opportunity to turn our attention to queer people in the history of science we currently have a great queer science series happening on our website Um, we also ran one last year so um, you can check out this year's series and last year's at um, ladiescience.com slash blog And today on the podcast, we're going to be chatting about 19th century queer women in science.
1: Or, I suppose if you want to get technical, women scientists in the late 19th century who never married, but built their social, personal, and professional lives around other women.
0: I Guys, in my head, I've been calling this the Gals Just being Pals episode. Um, because I feel, get yeah, just gals, being pals. Um, but I will stop being facetious and making jokes about the way that we talk about queer people throughout history, though I could forever. Um, really, we want to talk about women who live together in romantic partnerships, regardless of what they called them at the time. Um, and... Uh, talk about how they um, did that in a time before lesbian or queer were really identities um, as we understand them today, um, what it meant for their professional and scientific work, and what looking at those relationships can teach us about queer identity and maybe even romantic relationships of all stripes today.
1: And later in the show we're welcoming back to the show Kate Shepard who's going to talk about research that she's doing on queer women archaeologists and Egyptologists in the 19th century. And Kate and her piece that is running uh, in the issue for June kind of really inspired this whole episode. So we're really excited to talk to her about that. So, yeah, let's get into it.
2: Near the end of her life, Elizabeth Kouchier, yes, Kouchier, Uh,
0: yes let's go with that
2: (laughs) as always
1: someone will send us an email
0: Yep. yep
2: yep um she wrote in her autobiography about her later years in the death of emily blackwell thus the years happily passed until september 1910 a sad blow came in the death of dr blackwell making an irreparable break in my life Both Elizabeth and Emily had been professors at Women's Medical College of New York, and they were both pioneering experts in obstetrics and gynecology. Since 1884, they had lived together and even raised an adopted daughter named Nanny, which, how cute (laughs) is that name? Um, While they certainly encountered many roadblocks throughout their lives, and they had to work tirelessly to receive the education that they wanted and to build their professional status, They were seen as respectable spinsters who had dedicated their lives to improving society.
0: Uh, They wouldn't have called themselves lesbian or queer, and we don't know anything about their sex life, Um, and they certainly weren't married in the legal sense. Um, But they were a couple, and many of the people around them um, knew they were a couple, and they moved through the world that way. That can sound pretty baffling to modern ears. Uh, We usually assume in the kind of weird progressive view of history that, until very recently, queer people had to keep their relationships secret. And don't get me wrong, um, Blackwell and Couchier weren't out in the way we think of being out today, Um, but they lived at a time when it was possible for two white middle-class professional women to make a life together that uh, to me at least feels like this very modern and recognizable long-term romantic relationship.
1: So, okay, so we should back up a little bit and talk about why this is possible in this period. So, because I think before we can really understand the life that Blackwell and Kushier built together, we should talk about the social world in which they built that life and how that made it possible. So. One of the things that I think is tough for us to conceive about when we think about the past um, and we think about the 19th century in particular is how little time men and women spent with each other because of ideas about the differences between women and men, um, ideas about sex and sexuality. For many centuries in the West, women spent a lot more time exclusively in the company of other women and men spent a lot of time exclusively in the company of other men.
2: And one of the results of this segregation of men and women is that before the 20th century, women's deepest, most emotionally significant relationships were often with other women. And that was pretty normal. And it was even celebrated. And one 19th century writer, William Alger, said that women's love for one another, quote, constitutes the richness, consolation, and joy of their lives. And this phenomenon is generally called romantic friendship because there was so much of what we think of today as romance embedded in these relationships, and frankly, so much romantic language in the letters that have been left behind. Um, But regardless of where their passions lay, women's lives were controlled socially and economically by their male relatives, and that meant that for the vast majority of women, there was no practical opportunity for women to build their lives with each other even if they wanted to.
0: Uh, But then um, in the mid to late 19th century, um, middle class white women start to have more access to education and economic independence. And because of that, there's this window of time when romantic friendship is still this like respectable and acceptable idea. Um, while, at the same time, a growing set of fairly privileged women um, embarked upon professional careers that allowed them to support themselves without men. Um, and so there's this new possibility of economic freedom um, that meant that women who wanted a female partner, uh, who were in like, the right like, economic and social sphere, really could have one. And this isn't to say that it was easy to be an unmarried woman in the world um, or to have a profession as a woman. Um, the women, the women we'll talk about today certainly like had to fight against a lot of um, structural issues to get the education and career they wanted. Um, but it was possible. And it didn't make you destitute or a social pariah. Um, it just kind of made you quirky. It made you like the weird lady who knows a lot of stuff. Um, but as long as you were otherwise like within like socially like proper social circles, that was fine. And it was having a job and not being married to a man that made you quirky. Um, not setting up a home with a woman—that thing actually like made a lot of sense once you were doing the other two things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, in her book *Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers*, Lillian Faderman notes that it was fairly common for college-educated women to remain unmarried, and this is like the shocking fact of this <laughs> episode. I think so. In fact, in um, 57% of Smith College's graduating class of 1884 never got married.
0: I love I love that statistic. It's so great. It's <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs>
1: um, so it was incredibly common to just not get married if you went to college. And so as educated professional women, a lot of women who worked in scientific fields in this time, naturally, they didn't marry either. So many of them had decades-long partnerships with women who had similar education and social status and progressive interest.
2: And so that brings us back to Emily Blackwell and Elizabeth Cushier. Emily was the younger sister of Elizabeth Blackwell, known for being the first woman in America to receive a medical degree. And Emily grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was actually inspired by her sister Elizabeth to apply to medical school in Geneva, New York, but she was rejected and then she was accepted by Rush Medical College. On her first day of medical school, she entered her classroom to find a cartoon on the chalkboard of an outrageous-looking woman in bloomers, Um, and next to the cartoon were the words, quote, a strong-minded woman. And her very professional and mature male classmates went on to complain to the Illinois State Medical Society about her. The medical society censored the college for accepting a woman and then vetoed her admission after only one semester (sighs) she finally received her medical degree from western reserve university or what is now case western Uh,
0: so in 1857 emily and her sister uh having gotten their medical degrees um, founded the new york infirmary for Indigent women and children. Indigent's one of those words that I can never say out loud. Me. Um, today, uh, the um, infirmary still exists as uh, the Lower Manhattan Hospital. When it was founded, um, it was staffed only by women, which served a couple of important purposes. Uh, for one thing, it was an opportunity to employ women who were denied employment at other hospitals. Uh, from what I read, part of the reason why they founded it is because they had such a hard time getting employment elsewhere. They're like, just fine, we'll do our own thing. Fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, says every woman.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ever. like, it's,
0: like, it's so like a final do-it-myself kind yeah. of move, power move that is delightful. Um, but there was also like a sort of... Um, reason for their patients as well, and uh, that's that, honestly, like today, there were women who were more comfortable uh, speaking to a woman doctor, particularly about gynecological issues, um, and, and you can imagine, especially like in the Victorian period, that uh, being examined by a man would be like really stressful for a lot of women, and so this was an opportunity for that as well. Um, They expanded their efforts um, to both educate women doctors and serve women patients um, when in 1868 they opened the Women's Medical College. Uh, Then a year later, when um, her sister moved to London, Emily became the dean of the college and remained its chief administrator for the next 30 years.
1: From the time she was a young woman, Emily wrote about wanting to have a life companion and in 1852 at the age of 26 she wrote quote, i thought how beautiful it would be to live in the constant companionship of truly noble loving natures and i long deeply and intensely for affection and sympathy and yet even when that feeling arises strongest it is not for a man's affection it is for a noble human being neither man nor woman for the old ideal Sometime in a higher life, when I shall be more worthy of them, I shall meet them, the kind, beautiful companions of my dreams.
0: There's so many feels.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got, I got goosebumps reading it. <laughs> so Emily first met Elizabeth Cushier when Elizabeth became a student at the Women's Medical College in 1869. After completing her degree, Kashir went to Zurich because that was the only place that would allow her to do the lab research that she was interested in. And she returned to New York and became a professor at the medical college in 1876. And that is when the relationship between Kushira and Blackwell seems to have taken off. Uh, in 1882, they set up a home together. And as we mentioned earlier, they also raised their adopted daughter. I think
2: it's, um, really important to emphasize just how interconnected their lives became. While they were both continuing to have careers, they raised Nanny together and discussed what her education would be like, like families do. Like parents. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah. Co parents. They
2: summered in Maine, like families do. Wow. Well, <laughs> and. Usually, um, Kishir would return home a few days before Blackwell so that she could air out the house and get things cleaned up. On one such occasion, Kushir wrote, quote, Much as I wanted to see you, dear, I am not sorry. You will not be here until next week, for I do not wish you to come into an unsettled house. And Blackwell would regularly refer to Kushir and Nanny as, quote, my family in letters home to her sister and brother.
0: Yeah, it's just one of the things that struck me in, in reading about this is just, like, all the small normal ways—normal, like like, normal boring things that sort of make a long-term romantic relationship— uh, and, and, like, yeah, the idea of, oh, we have to discuss, like, water education for our daughter is going to be like, or, oh, well, I know you really hate it when the house is a mess, so I'll clean it up for you, um, before you get here. And just, like, these, like, silly little things that, that bring it together just give me a lot of feelings. <laughs> this idea of family making and making family
2: where you are and where yeah. you want it to be and with who you want it to be with, and... I think that that does have a very modern feel to it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like I feel like, especially in pop culture, there's been a lot more emphasis in the last decade or so on highlighting what family can look like, um, and so this, to me, feels like a very modern representation of what family making can be.
1: Cheese. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so. It's so sweet, and they're. Their letters are just very tender and it just, it's so nice. I think this is one of the more clear-cut cases in which you you just can't look at this stuff and not say, not, you know, acknowledge that this was, like, a romantic relationship and a family that was made this way. And, like, obviously no one would ever, you know, even if people, even if, like, a man and a woman were not married and didn't have, like... You know the legal records that we use to establish people's relationship had these letters. You would never, ever, ever question it. Of course, right. right?
2: Well, and I've seen letters written between men and women of this time period, and they were married or engaged or having an affair or something like that, and they're using very similar language. Like yeah. it's, but it's like when for a long time when historians have looked at these letters when they're between men and men or between women and women, that it's somehow they look at it in a different, different way that now this is, um, something that is, well, they're using romantic language, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a romantic attraction or whatever. But if a straight couple is using the same language in their correspondence, there's no question,
1: you know, exactly. And also, like, this idea that, like, oh, well, we can't prove that they had sex, so. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah. and also that's none of your business. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't prove that, like, half of the people that were, like, straight people that were married and didn't have kids also didn't have sex. Exactly. Right? Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. That's, like, really basically the only way we can prove that someone had sex is if there was a child involved.
3: Yep. And yeah, and even Can then you?
0: we can't really one hundred percent prove it because the the, she could have been having sex with someone else. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think <laughs> you that want to there's get super technical. Well, yeah, I think that there's just this like,
1: frankly, kind of gross impulse on the part of maybe historians of the previous age. I'll give people credit today. I guess I don't know, but that <laughs> like. That that's the only way that you can prove that someone was in a relationship. And that that's the only way that a relationship can become, like, legitimate. Right, yeah. And that's a huge bummer.
2: Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, they didn't have Facebook. They couldn't (laughs) mark their status. (laughs) (laughs) How else were they going to be legitimate if it wasn't for the sex? (laughs) Yeah
0: like, and also, like, not that, not that having, not that raising children makes a relationship either, but, like, they raised a daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, Emily adopted Nanny, um, before she got into a relationship with, um, with Elizabeth, but, like, Nanny was still really young, and they raised her, and, like, it just, it's, it's another marker of what, like, they were parents to her.
2: Yeah, she had two moms. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This particular story is kind of interesting because it falls at this moment in history, um, like we said earlier, where there's sort of a window um, Mm -hmm. for these kind of relationships. Uh, But um, when Emily Blackwell died in 1910, this kind of two respectable spinsters living together thing had had started to become suspect in sort of the social life of, uh, the early 20th century. So basically, um, then it became medicalized, which is yeah. something we've talked yep. about before. The medical community started to identify women who had relationships with one another and specifically women who had sex with one another as, uh, lesbians or female inverts. And at first, um, the women who were identified as inverts were universally, Poor. They were sex workers. They were women of color, women who were already seen by quote unquote respectable society as degenerate and sexually promiscuous. Promiscuous. That's um, that one's mine. You have indigent. I have prom- promiscuous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and is this? Am I correct in thinking this timeline correctly? Like this is also around the time when sex sexologist or sex yeah there's yeah. a this word that is i'm all not getting
0: coming up at the same time
2: right okay yeah. that's what i thought that those that that path path yeah. pathology wow <laughs> we're really <laughs> doing good with the words tonight guys you get oh one and you goodness. get one and you
0: get one
2: that yeah. it was like the introduction of that kind of like quote-unquote branch of science that pathologized these types of relationships
0: yeah. and like freud's coming up somewhere right. in here too and like all these ideas about like yeah medicalizing sexuality and many parts of kind of people that were just previously like things people did or ways they structured their lives like yeah become medicalized mm-hmm. in various ways um and mm-hmm. soon um and while you know they they start with medicalizing the people that they thought were terrible um, <laughs> Soon, researchers started to turn their gaze on middle-class, quote-unquote, romantic friendship. Um, in 1905, so even before Emily Blackwell had died, um, a man named Bernard Talmy published a treatise called Women. Literally oh, the title, it. Women.
1: Um, so melodramatic.
0: <laughs> women. I feel like it needs an exclamation point at the end. Um <laughs> Anyway, he calls uh, intimate relationships between women, quote, of homosexual origin. Homosexual, I think, is a pretty new word, too, at this time, um, for context. Yeah. Um, and he said that the only reason that people didn't have a problem with romantic friendship is because they couldn't imagine respectable women having sex with one another, which, to be fair, was probably a little <laughs> bit true. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is kind of part of what's why um, both today, I think, we have a hard time talking about the sexuality of these women, but also the reason why I think that, like, they were seen as respectable is because they were seen as sexless. Um, And as soon as anyone started thinking, well, maybe it's not sexless, then everyone freaked out and it was terrible. Um, But, uh, so, what did the middle-class women in romantic friendships do when faced with the prospect of being labeled as inverts and lesbians? Did they band together with their non-white working-class sisters? (laughs) No. (laughs) Like usual. No. No. Um, at least not in general. Um, many of them sort of, uh, even women who had, like, had these lifelong relationships, uh, condemned inverts, um, said, oh, god, no, I'm not, like, I'm not a lesbian, um, and, uh insisted that their relationships had no sexual component. Um, Or at the very least, they'd say things like, well, like, it happens sometimes, but, like, we didn't mean to, and it wasn't the point. Uh, And by the early 20th century, um, also many women's college professors were specifically discouraging students from making the kind of romantic attachments that those college professors were in. Um, And... So it just, it gets really messy because basically, like, racism and classism comes into play in, like, a hard, terrible way uh, in this, like, transition away from romantic friendship. And given all of that, how can we talk about, like, the origins of romantic friendship and and the modernness of it and just what it means to us today?
1: (sighs) Yeah. Well, I think just this issue of class is something to really bear in mind that like the the idea of two respectable spinsters making a life together that creates this window for for you know something like Blackwell's relationship isn't available to women who are not of a certain class who are not either professionals or who are sort of um have like family money and sort of have means of their own like uh it that like the the window of that type of relationship that we've been talking about like relies on factors related to class mm-hmm. for sure if you're like a poor working woman in the 19th century and you're you're not married You're not like setting up this like nice house that needs to be aired out when you're coming back from your (laughs) summer in Maine, you know, you're living in like a boarding house or a rooming house with a bunch of other single like young women, and you're not creating this kind of genteel family life together.
2: I think um, an interesting representation of some of these more problematic aspects of looking at some of these women in the past is being done really well in Gentleman Jack. Yes. Um, Because on the one hand, like Anne Lister was like a force (laughs) in many ways, but at the same time, like I think we would assume that that she was this force who kind of put herself in male space uh, and made herself known and present in male space and was very, Um, open in her diaries about wanting a family and feeling like she deserved a family and um, that she was born to love women and that that was natural because she was born that way and so we kind of look at that as being a progressive feminist figure but she was also like kind of shitty to poor people and she also like wasn't great to women in general like as a group of people (laughs) like um you know, um, kind of adopted, um, you know, 19th century ideas about what constitutes a, a well-read woman or an interesting woman, um, you know, as opposed to one who's silly or poor or something like that. So like she had these other problematic aspects to her character that was part of the class that she came from. She was a landed, she was part of the landed gentry, right? Um, so I think they're doing a really good job of, of kind of giving us both of them. I mean, she, yeah, you yeah. Know, she's a complex character because she was
1: a complex person. <laughs> yeah, and you like every once in a while I find myself slipping into the kind of like she's the protagonist and everything she does is right, and then she just like she just rains down <laughs> disdain on her sister for wanting to marry oh my that. God.
0: That carpet rug guy. guy,
1: and you're just like, oh god, no that's No
0: one right. is a good enough friend to Marion Lister. <laughs> <laughs> she, seriously, she needs a buddy. She does. Poor Marion. Yeah. But like yeah, I mean I I love that they'll they'll slip in details. Like I think there's one point when she's going down into a coal shaft and there are like children working in the coal mine. And she just says something like, Oh, well like how much are how much do they cost? Or like how hard do they work? <laughs> yes. And then like the guy t- the, the foreman tells her and then they keep moving on. And like mm-hmm. the camera lingers on these poor children while like Anne Lister's just like paying attention to coal things.
1: An important part of that too is that she it wasn't that she, like, rejected all of, like you said, all of the social structures of her time. Like, she wanted to be married. To a wealthy woman. To a yeah. wealthy woman. Yeah. She yeah. talked. She talks about how she wants all of her tenants to be married because that makes them yes. more settled. So she wasn't, like, trying to, like, you know, totally destroy the system because the system gave her her wealth and her status and her ability to pursue these romantic relationships with women and to like have plans to marry a woman and live with her anyway. like so understanding the way that those sort of structural forces interplay in the way that these people, these these women kind of navigate this within their own context and kind of leverage their their position is important in understanding yeah. how this how these things are, uh, are possible and how how someone would build a life like this?
2: Yeah, and I think the same with like modern, current day people. Like just because you're marginalized on one front doesn't mean you're immune yep. from criticism on another. I think that should also apply to the people that we look at in the past yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, and I and I do think that there's this like awkward to deal with thread of respectability politics through like the history of gay liberation. Um, in, in that, like, so you have, yeah, you, so you have these, like, 19th century respectable spinsters, um, and then in the mid-20th century with, like, the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Bilitis, who were these, um, uh, gay and lesbian, um, organizations, um, that did a lot of really important work for, uh, um, what we now call LGBT rights, but their whole thing was we're not like those working class people. Like there was a there's a whole um, discourse about how um, the they wanted they in some of these early uh, marches. Um, they were like, no, the women dress, like, very, very feminine, and the men dress very, very masculine. And they wrote a lot of negative things about uh, butch and femme culture that was also, like, Mm. the thing among lesbians at the time. Um, About working-class lesbians at the time. And so, like... uh, there's all of that, and then, um, you know, like, we get the 90s and aughts, where there's this idea where the only kind of appropriate queer person is someone who wants to get married and have 2.5 kids in a house in the suburbs, and is white, um, and middle class, and we're going to ignore all the other queer people that exist, Right, uh, the nuclear family, yeah, but, yeah, like, with, his, like, two dads or two moms, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not gonna, not gonna take, leave all the other structures in place, um, Two right. June cleavers. <laughs> yeah, what'd you say? Two June cleavers. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh, oh boy. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's this awkward, I feel like there is this, like, awkward st- strain of, of that because, yeah, being one marginalized thing doesn't make you not marginalized in other ways. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and because in some ways, like, in problematic ways, it has allowed queer people to, who can, to navigate spaces in in ways that, and they've taken advantage of that. But I think looking at,
2: um, not only, like, this history of recovering and looking at these figures and all their complexity, but also looking at the history of gay rights and gay liberation, and then, like, the history of sexuality and the history of queerness and how that discourse has changed over like every decade yeah. there's a, a new a new argument about how we're talking about this and how we should be talking about it and i think that can continually reevaluating how we've done this history how we have talked about it how we've talked about these people of the past and how we've talked about ourselves like keeps moving the conversation forward in a really good way I think like we're not done (laughs) having those conversations by any means and I think that it's good I think it's a it's a healthy conversation it's a robust conversation I wish that more people would be interested in having it to be honest (laughs) or be open to having it I guess is more the or the people who had the conversation in the 70s and stopped there
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's just along with being wrong it's just so much less interesting (laughs) in line with what you were
1: saying about the the way that we are sort of continually revisiting this in the context of trying to understand the past you know in terms of our contemporary discussions about about queer liberation i think that this continual like surfacing of these figures of the past and trying to reckon with them and trying to f- figure out what the place of these stories is today that adds so much richness and so so much complexity to our understanding of the past in general like it's so incredibly important to recover these stories but also to continually kind of like um, resurface them and, and, like, interpret them and contextualize them. So we may have these ideas about the 19th century where men marry women and do all of their affairs and women do nothing except do needlepoint and stuff. But that's not, and, you know, that's not true for everybody. And that's not true for, for Blackwell. I mean, good Lord, they, like, started a medical college and did all of this stuff and they had, you know, these very rich, she had this very rich personal life that is part of that and, and was part of how she, you know, did her work. And I don't know. I just, this, this shit is really important.
2: <laughs> I think, I think it's a good time to do our interview. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Now we're going to talk about a couple that is probably less well-known than one that bears the name Blackwell, and that is Maggie Benson and Nettie Gourlay. And to help us understand their lives and careers a little bit better, we're going to welcome Kate Shepard back to the show. She first came on the show in episode two to talk about Egyptologist Margaret Murray and witches. Um, So go on and check that out if you haven't yet, but now we're going to talk about two other women archaeologists. So welcome back, Kate.
3: Thank you very much. I had no idea I was on episode two. That was a long time ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was.
3: It was. (laughs) I am happy to be back. Thank you so much. Um,
2: So why don't you get us started by telling us who Maggie Benson and Nettie Gourlay were
3: and what they did? And am I saying... Nettie's last name right? I think so. I don't really know how to pronounce her last name to be honest because I was I was actually talking to somebody else about it today and I was saying Gourlay and I think it's Gourlay. Yes. Okay
2: well it's one of those things where you only see it written. Yeah. And then you have to say it out loud and you're like oh god. Somebody knows
3: we might get emails about it. I don't know. Okay so Maggie Benson was Uh, the daughter of basically the Archbishop of Canterbury, Edward Benson, and his wife, Mary. Um, he, I love this story, but love not in like a, it's a really sweet romantic story. Um, he started courting (laughs) her when she was 12 and I believe he was 20. Um, and then when she, when Mary turned 18, um, Edward was then allowed to marry her. Um, she didn't want to get married, uh, To him, or really to I think any man, Um, but he was moving up in the Anglican church, and so they had a bunch of kids um, who turned out to be, you know, famous authors and artists and poets, and, you know, they were part of the Victorian intelligentsia. Um, None of their children ended up married to the opposite sex anyway. Um, Every single one of them um, either, quote unquote, died unmarried. Or, you know, they were in same sex partnerships and people knew about this and it was fairly well known. Um, Once Edward died, I don't remember what year he died, but once Edward died, uh, Mary Benson, his wife, was sort of free to to be in her own same sex relationships with other women. So she definitely um, took advantage of that uh, because he was gone. Um, So Maggie was part of the the upper the upper class. And then um, Nettie Gourlay was, uh, I think she was, I believe it was more of a middle class background. And she was actually trained um, at University College London by Margaret Murray um, and Flinders Petrie. And so when she got to Egypt and the two of them met in 1896, um, it was sort of a match made in heaven because Benson wanted to excavate and Gourlay knew how. And so um, when they met, they were able to do that.
0: So as um, you started to hint, you hinted, hinted at the fact that uh, you know, the Benson children are described as dying unmarried, and that is how uh, Benson um, and Gourlay are described. Uh, and when their relationship is mentioned, it's that they are intimate friends or constant companions. I love the euphemisms. I do too. Um, I do too. So, and by love, I mean you know, don't. But yes, but um, <laughs> yeah. As as you uh, you kind of push back in your essay about this way of describing their relationship, and so I was wondering if you would uh, extrapolate on that a bit.
3: Okay, so this is where I'm going to really get after it because, um, <laughs> to let all the listeners know, right? I'm a I'm a cis het white woman. I grew up in middle class suburbia in in the Midwest. Um. So this is not like relationship like this. Like they're just not part of my daily purview, really. And I, I still live in a small town, so it's it's still. Um, and so when I was doing this research, I was just reading. Like of course they're friends. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they died unmarried. Boy, isn't that you know tragic or whatever. Um, and then I started reading. There's her brother, Benson's brother, Fred. I think uh, published a book of her correspondence, Life and Letters of Maggie Benson. And so I started reading these, and I was like, oh, man, this friendship is really intense, and she's writing to her mom, you know, (laughs) about, like, I really think you'll love her like I do, and I just hate to be apart from her. And I was like, yeah, yes. Aha. This is what's, it was just like this very, I'm almost 40, you know? And I'm just like, why did it take so long for this to sort of, shine in my face and just sort of blink and go yes of course and the thing is a lot of Egyptologists they know this already and I um I emailed one of my friends who's just um she's an amazing archaeologist and she does lots of history of archaeology and so I was like hey did you know about this she's like yeah kind of everybody does and I was like (laughs) well then why doesn't anybody say it like why in every single at least Egyptology or archaeology piece about either of them it's they were friends. They were companions. They died unmarried. It was intense, but everything, you know, was, I don't know, on the up and up or everything, you know, was just kind of like <laughs> they weren't passionate with each other, but they very clearly were. Um, one of the letters that Maggie writes to Nettie is she says something like, I need you bodily, my dearest. And, you know, just kind of this you can almost sense this physical longing that they have for each other. And these letters are extremely passionate and very loving and um, a little obsessive on Maggie's part. uh, But that kind of, once I started thinking about it in those terms, sort of this whole world opened up to me for all of these women that I've been looking at for the last I don't know, 15 years, I'm like, all right, I have so much more work to do, <laughs> to go back and and kind of trace this back just to see, I mean, um, not to, not to necessarily, you know, kind of out anybody post-mortem or anything or posthumously, but um, to really get in there and, and see how these relationships affected them, not just personally, um, but professionally. And, um, the things that they could do together that they wouldn't have been able to do by themselves. So it was just kind of like this um, pulling back of the curtain, if you will, and just going, oh, that's it! And yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: you, uh, you said that you know, there were professional as well as personal benefits to them living together. and um, Not only was seen as perfectly acceptable in in this period, but also like really enabled them to do their work in really important ways. So
3: can you kind of lay out some of, some of that aspect of it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, they, when Benson got to Egypt for her first season, so January of 1896, she had her brother helping her, um, one of her brothers, and I think it might have been Fred, too. I think they must have been pretty close because he went to Egypt with her. She was there to sort of convalesce. She had some issues. She had something, I'm going to go kind of off the rails here. She had something called pleurisy. Um, And if you haven't heard of this, I don't know if anybody has, but it's basically an inflammation. Your lungs, like, have a lining on them. And it's an inflammation of the, of the, of your lungs rubbing against that lining. And so every time you breathe, it feels like you're, 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 insides are getting rubbed with sandpaper. And so what they have to do is, this is great. So what they have to do is they have to go in and they do this now, obviously like outpatient, but it's still pretty awful. They go in with just like a big needle and they have to like drain that lining. They had to do that for her in Egypt in 1896 um, in her hotel room, right? That was probably not the cleanest. Um, So she had some health issues. And so like, lung health issues you go to the desert right this is what you did in the 1890s and so she went her brother went and so she needed her brother's help because she basically was doing this by herself but if you have uh at this point in time if you had a western partner or a western you know digging excavating partner um it was much easier for two people to try to to try to run um a local digging crew of like of a bunch of um, egyptian men Um, And so she had Fred's help, but neither of them had any excavation experience. They were just, they were interested in it. Maggie had read some books. They had money. um, They had the support of this one archaeologist who was working in the area, Percy Newberry. And that's really all they needed. They had money. They had somebody to kind of give them a little guidance and they had a crew who would work. So they started digging um, in Karnak. And then the following season, January January of 1897, a mutual friend basically introduced Nettie and Maggie. Um, And so now Nettie could come in and she could be like, all right, here's what we've got to do. Here is the process. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, And now we're going to publish all of these findings because these are really important. And she could tell, you know, the Bensons what they were looking at. And she could um, help them do all of this organization because she had the training. So, but she she didn't have the money. Nettie didn't have the money. So they kind of come together as like, Benson has the money, she has the connections, she has already started the excavation, and then Nettie comes in and she needs basically everything that Benson has, and Benson needs everything that Gourlet has, and um, so they formed this really perfect professional pair, because uh, Gourlet knows all of the ins and outs of academia, and how you publish this, and how you get help from the Department of Antiquities, and how all of that works. And then Benson, of course, I mean, has the money, which is super important. Uh, neither of them, Gourlet never finished her degree, I think, at UCL. Um, and Benson did not have one in Egyptology. She was trained at Oxford uh, at Lady Margaret Hall. But, you know, it's the 1890s. She didn't get a degree. Um, so, yeah, they they were able so professionally to do that. And then just personally, uh, I know that. Benson, the mutual friend that uh, introduced Gourlet and Benson, her name was Lady Jane Lindsay, and she wrote back to Benson's mother and said, you should see, you know, your Maggie. Like, I was walking through the gardens today at the hotel to find her, and it's like she's a whole new person um, after she had met Gourlet. And they both really came together, I think, in a time when they really needed each other personally. Uh, and so then they were able to kind of let both of those... Um, flourish.
2: One of the things that I think is interesting about adding to the the professional aspect of their relationship and how it was professionally beneficial is that neither one of them had to share the spotlight or the credit with a male partner, Um, that they were able to support each other kind of in a really cohesive way without having to worry about their things being stolen by a man.
0: Yeah.
2: And they did yes. publish a book together. Yeah.
3: Yes, they did. Um, the temple of Mutt in Asher, which is the temple of Mut in Karnak. I've never really been able to figure out exactly what the Asher part necessarily means, but yeah. Um, it's a, I think Benson is first author and Gourlay is, is second, which usually happens. The person who has the money is the, is the first author, but yeah. And they, they thank Percy Newberry as their assistant and they thank Fred Benson as their <laughs> assistant. Um, but they didn't get any of the credit, which is fantastic. <laughs> or the men didn't get any of, of that credit, which they shouldn't, right? right. Because they didn't yeah. fund the work. They didn't necessarily do it. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. And they they had that luxury of not having to worry that they were going to be silenced or that they had to worry that I'm, you know, I'm putting all this work in and I'm publishing all this all this work and, you know, it's my... It's Professor Petrie's work and I'm not going to get my name on that but they didn't yeah they didn't have to worry about that in
0: in so many ways it feels a lot like you know we talk about in history of science partnerships and and couples who did work together and you know we've talked about on, talked about that on the podcast and the, pro- the problematic things that happen with that of course uh, and it feels like you do you see a lot of parallels to that. Except like they are both able to be equal partners in this, and um, it's it's just yeah that it, it the both the parallels and the things that are different make it so fascinating.
3: Yeah, I yeah I totally agree. And there are um, one of the so when I was working on this, I kind of got on Twitter and I, I sort of just threw it out there. I was like, who knew this and didn't tell me basically. Um, and Sharon Marcus, the author of, uh, intimate friends, I believe. Oh, no, between women. Thank you. Between women. Um, she responded to me, right. I mean, this was like a award-winning book, best-selling author. And she responded (laughs) to me on Twitter and, um, she was lovely. And she was just like, Hey, you know, I, I kind of wrote the book on this. And I was like, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, and so, in, and she lays out these, these different kinds of relationship dynamics, usually that would happen mm-hmm. between women. Um, and one of, to me, for me and for, um, Benson and Gourlay, the most important one was this yeah. one between equals, um, because that's exactly what it was. And there are other, of course, you know, relationship dynamics, They're relationships, um, but they did not have that kind of relationship where one was a more dominant or more outspoken person. They were just, they were working together.
2: And one of the things that I find interesting is your use of correspondence to piece together their relationship. So even though women couldn't enter into legal marriages with other women, that would be officially recognized by the state. Um, there are different ways that historians have been able to trace queer marriages, um, Um, they did. There were couples that actually exchanged rings and vows uh, and things like that. And so one of the things that you trace is is their correspondence. So can you talk a little bit about how you're able to piece together their relationship through
3: all of this correspondence? Yeah. um, I love letters. They are, (laughs) and I love love letters. So they're amazing. And it, it kind of And I I don't know, I should probably be better at it too, but it it makes one sad that we don't have a whole lot of that correspondence that's going to be coming out of, say, the early 21st century. But these letters that, you know, we've all had to write pieces like this where you have a little bit over here and then you have a little bit over here. And how can I get these seemingly disparate sources? And then I've got to find a newspaper thing over here and then you have to kind of weave it all together. Thankfully, uh, her brother had published a, a ton of her letters. Um, and then um, I also was able... So I used the Intimate Friends book to kind of help me put all of that in context. So I used uh, Intimate Friends by Martha Vicinis and Between uh, Women by Sharon Marcus. And they both of those were huge helps for me to even to get my mind into... Um, you know, just kind of a a non-heterosexual, like non-heteronormative mindset. And then there's a new book out um, that another colleague of mine um, pointed me toward. And I don't remember the name of the gentleman who wrote it, but it's called A Very Queer Family Indeed. And it's all about the Benson family. So, um, And on the cover of that book is this beautiful picture of Benson and Gourlay. And it's again, you can just feel this physical longing just sort of seeping out of this image. And um, it's a really intimate picture, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's just, it's beautiful. It's, um, so basically just figuring out where they were at particular times and in what context they're writing to each other. And Thankfully, Fred puts a lot of that context in the Life and Letters part, so I don't have to do a whole lot of tracing that timeline. Um, but there's not, he doesn't really produce anything from Gourlay coming back. So that's part of the mystery here, is how was she responding to a lot of this? Mm-hmm. Um, Fred, Fred does put the context in, and he'll be like, Um, The reason why there are no letters between Benson and Gourlay during this six-month period is because they were living together in Sheffield or, you know, whatever. Um, So it's very clear that there is very clear and passionate reciprocation for the most part, kind of until the end of Benson's life, um, until the end of Gourlay's life, because I believe she dies first. But um, it's just you kind of feel again you sort of feel like you're looking into their private diaries their their private thoughts um and Benson is is extremely expressive verbally about her feelings just in general so um that that makes it really easy is because she just sort of put everything down on
0: paper
2: i guess one thing that i want to ask about the letters is that um if it if it is kind of so obvious like why have historians been so reticent to put that their relationship in the terms <clears throat> that they described it to each other?
3: I, I wonder the same thing. And I wonder, well, I have some thoughts, and I'm just going to put them out there <laughs> because here we are. It's lady science. Um, I mean, it's definitely, from my perspective, it seems to be the um, – you know, the patriarchal construction, the really muscular archaeology that goes on. And that tent, that is the, um, in the history of archaeology and especially Egyptology, that's the main narrative. These men go out, they're helped by their wives um, very often, or they marry their students who they meet um, in cool, this. Cool, very above board. Exactly. It's so, anytime I'm like, <laughs> oh, this person did that, it's like, no, that doesn't sound right. I. Um, but yeah, exactly. Just like, hey, hey, lady, you're my student. Do you want to, like, sit around the campfire with me tonight? I don't know. You're my wife now. You're my wife now, because you wrote something that I'm going to put my name on. Um, (laughs) I think that was, like, how you get married in archaeology in the 1880s. It's like, will you write up my notes? Yes. Aha, we're married. Um, but also... (laughs) would be hilarious? Um, also, like, the, so, so we tell these stories of Petrie and Hilda, his erstwhile and long-suffering wife who came out into the field and, um, you know, they never celebrated on Christmas because they were too busy working. A lot of the story that doesn't get told is that he had to, like, work really hard to convince her to marry him. He asked her once and she said no and, like, escaped to the countryside. And then he had to go... And convince her mother that she should do this. And then she was like, yeah, okay, I guess I will. Um, And then they got married and they left for an excavation season the day they got married. So it's just very much this, like, I am going to go into the field. I'm going to go do these very exciting masculine things. And I have to have a woman to help me because... I don't know how to organize this stuff, or I don't know, I, you know. My handwriting is so messy. I need somebody else to do it for me. But yeah, and so I think people just kind of assume. Well, these these two are married, and then this group of women over here these militant um, these militant suffragettes who uh, are all sharing a tent. Um, they're obviously fine. I mean, everything is. You know, they're just really good friends, and that's the only way that we can and should explain it. And also. There's probably a little bit of, you know, trying to be careful because we look for that smoking gun of, aha, these two were clearly married. But you can't trace that in many of these cases, Leila, like you had said, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But then you have people like Amelia Edwards, the sort of godmother of Egyptology, very well known um, to Egyptologists. Her grave site with her partner, her, I think, they were together for something like 30 years. Um, Ellen um, Bradshaw uh, is a LGBTQ um, listed site in England. Um, and people go there. It's like a pilgrimage kind of site. And Edwards was known, Edwards and Bradshaw were known to be t- a, a, a pair. Everybody knew it. And, um, and everybody also knew that Edwards would go and travel with a number of women in her life. Um, Who could give her, I think, particular emotional and possibly physical things that Bradshaw just couldn't. Um, Mm -hmm. But Bradshaw was okay with it because she always came back home. Uh, So, we know all of this stuff. But, yeah, I, I wish I had just like, aha, this is it. This is why nobody is saying this. I mean...
2: Well, and I think also, because you're talking about a smoking gun, is, like, looking for, like, someone to have written yeah. down There's definitively, this... <laughs> I like men, or I like women. Like,
0: Yeah. yeah. There's this just... thing where it's like, we're like, we have to find out if... We we can't know if they had sex. Yes! Um, which is yes. also weird, because right. that is not the definition of a heterosexual relationship, either. <laughs> no, <Nope>, right? <laughs> it's like, does it... it yeah um, and not to like universally desexualize the relationships either, but um yeah it gets we get stuck in this idea that we have to know if they had sex with each other, yeah um, right. because that's the way that we define this relationship when there's no legal standing for it yeah that fe- I mean that feels like an excuse more than the reason, um, yeah the reasons I think are as as you said, more have to do with heteronormativity and patriarchy, and awkwardness with female sexuality, and all that good stuff. Um, Yeah. But it's funny the things people trot out, like, well, we don't know for sure, we don't know if they had sex for sure, well, we don't know, oh, well, you know, Victorian women just wrote, like, this, oh, well. (laughs) Um, all these things. Uh, oh, well, this was just, like, part of this, like, cultural understanding, and, um, and, like, some of those things are a little bit true, but it's still, yeah, if you build your life with someone, Yes, that person is your sort of life partner, yeah. regardless of like sexuality yeah. or identity
3: yeah agreed and but that's the thing because with Edwards specifically, she is very clear um, when she falls in love with these women um she was extremely passionate in her letters toward Kate Bradbury, who was her. Uh, quote unquote traveling companion toward the end of her life um but I know before she met Bradshaw she was uh basically in a in a partnership with a um like a vicar and his wife and she made the vicar marry her to the vicar's wife in the church in front of an altar and they exchanged rings and everything and like (laughs) everybody was okay with this yeah she was a force of nature I would have loved to have met her um But, yeah, like, people know this, right? This is out there. These are stories that people knew. She wrote letters to some of her male colleagues, and um, they wrote back, and they're like, well, I burned those private pages you told me to burn. And it's like, why is she making them burn private pages? Like, we all know what they're talking about. Um, Right. And that's where especially the Marcus volume was super helpful. She said something like, uh, Rebecca, like, the point that you're making, whether or not they actually had sex— becomes way less important than um, how the people around them perceived them. Are they mm-hmm. a couple? Yes, they are. Yeah. We don't really care what they're doing in their bedroom. Right. We just know that they're a couple.
2: Right. And their correspondence show that they saw themselves as a couple yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. So I guess, like, kind of the final question, because we were just now talking about the erasure of mm-hmm. these kinds of relationships in history – why do you think it's important that we don't erase them? And like, I know that your your specialty is history of archaeology, mm-hmm. but I think that this could have is is important for the history of science yeah. at large. So if you could kind of talk about why you think it's so important that we do recognize the relationship between Benson and Gourlay,
3: um as queer, I think it's important because we focus so much on heterosexual partnerships and what they do for both the male and the female scientist in the history of science. We do talk about this. We know all about, um, Einstein's first wife. We know all about what Emma Darwin did for Charles, right? Read to him on the couch when his tummy hurt too bad. Um, and I'm not trying to minimize what he was yeah. going through, but just like that was it. Right. And so there are all of these heterosexual partnerships that are seen as legitimate and they're helping each other, and we're giving credit to those. And then we're turning to these queer partnerships and saying, no, 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 but they were just friends. And it's this, that it, that is absolutely minimizing what these people meant to each other in their lives personally, and what they meant to each other professionally and how they were able to be more productive together than they ever could have been apart. Um, for all of these, you know, women that um, we've been talking about throughout this entire episode. So I think, and and when we when we focus on the heterosexual, on the heteronormative stuff in like historically, and erase you know queer relationships historically, then it turns around and does that in uh, just normal everyday society, and then we're not looking for those things historically, and so that that's just this reiterative process.
0: So I think that that's a good place for us to wrap things up. Um, if you want to learn more about Benson and Gourlay, uh, be sure to check out Kate's uh, piece, which is called Constant Companions and Intimate Friends, The Lives and Careers of Maggie Benson and Nettie Gourlay, which will be in this month's issue of Lady Science. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on the show again and talking about this. Uh, Thank you. been great. You.
3: Yeah, oh, I always love it.
0: Thanks, Kate. Thank you.
2: Yay. If you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. And it is Apple Podcasts because iTunes is dead. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit ladiescience.com. And as we constantly remind you, we are an independent magazine, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com/donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at @ladiesciencemag and on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ladyxscience.